And uh, not to let the cat out of the bag, but the, uh, the kids are going to be back at the very end. They've got something for us, so we'll look forward to that as well. Well, good morning, everyone, and happy 150th anniversary. You look great for 150, let me tell you. Bless you. If, uh, if you have your Bible with you today, I would love for you to open it to Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. Luke 24, 44 to 49, that's on page 885 in the church Bibles. Uh, I had originally planned to have a guest uh, speaker with us today for our anniversary Sunday, and then the thought was after that, so next Sunday, I would do a little kind of vision casting message, and that would get us right into our Advent series starting in December. But uh, in the providence of, of God, uh, our speaker was not available to, uh, to be with us, um, and so we have two Sundays now uh, that we can use to revisit the mission of the church. As many of you will know, there are four Great Commission passages in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and five, actually, if you count the the repeat of Matthew's version that we find at the end of Mark's Gospel. And these are not just uh, four different versions of the same conversation. These are actually four distinct conversations that Jesus has in different places at different times during the 40 days that he spent with his disciples between his resurrection and ascension. In chronological order... Uh, If you were to arrange them that way, the first of those conversations is the one that's recorded in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. Uh, That one took place on Easter Sunday evening. And uh, their disciples are hiding in Jerusalem. They're afraid, you remember that. They're behind locked doors. They're still trying to figure everything out. uh, They've heard that the tomb was empty. They've heard that, that Jesus has appeared to some of the women, and they're starting to connect the dots. They're starting to remember some of the things that Jesus said, some of the weird, cryptic things he said about dying and rising from the dead. And they're starting to realize, okay, maybe that wasn't a metaphor. Maybe Jesus actually knew that, that to save his people, to save us, to, to deal with our sin, to, to restore us to God, he would have to actually die. And, and then physically, bodily rise from the dead on the third day. So they're just starting to connect those dots. Then all of a sudden, passing right through the walls, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the first of the four Great Commission passages, chronologically speaking. We're going to be looking at this one next week uh, because this is the one that is a little bit confusing and controversial. And I thought that it would be rude to confuse and offend you on Anniversary Sunday. So come back next week for that. And we'll take care of that then. The, the, the second of the Great Commission passages in terms of chronology is the one that we actually talked about last Sunday, the one found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. That's the most famous one. That's the one we know best. That's the one we've got painted over the outside uh, or the outward doors of our church. We want you to remember every time. And we talked about that last Sunday as we were finishing our journey through the Acts of the Apostles. Because as we come to the Acts of the Apostles, the, the message there, as we talked about last Sunday, is that a door has been slammed shut in, in terms of the gospel outreach to the Jews. Paul says a partial hardening has come on the Jews. We saw that in the last story that we looked at. But Paul understands that, you know, you've heard the expression when God closes a door, you, you kind of go out through a window. Paul understands that as actually the direction of God sending us 
out to the nations. And so he's eager to magnify his ministry to the nations. We talked about that last Sunday. That brings us to Luke, the passage that hopefully lies open before you now. This is the third of the Great Commission conversations. This one takes place in Jerusalem. The one in Matthew actually takes place up in Galilee. But now we're back in Jerusalem. This one takes place just hours before the ascension of Jesus. And then the fourth and final Great Commission passage, again in chronological order, one that's in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, that takes place just minutes before the ascension. As they're, as they're on the, the Mount of Olives, just outside of, of Jerusalem. And we looked at that one actually at the very beginning of our walk through the Acts of the Apostles. So actually, in the last 14 months, we've looked at two of the four Great Commission passages, and so I thought since we have these two weeks now uh, before the start of our Advent series, I thought we could take the opportunity to complete the set. Anniversaries, of course, are the perfect time to revisit the mission and mandate of the church. It's a great time for looking back, and we did. I mean, uh, I got to see the proofs of this church history project that's coming together with Dr. Haken, and uh, it's very exciting. It's great to look back, but let's be honest, a church that only looks back is is not going to move forward, right? And, and so it should kind of be the ratio of, of you know, uh, the windshield of your car and the rearview mirror. Both are important, but one ought to be bigger than the other. And, and so our emphasis ought to be looking forward, asking the question, what, is, what does God have in store for us? What is the future? Where are we going? What are we supposed to be doing? That's the most important thing to do in your church anniversary. So we're going to do that over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to do that this morning using Luke 24, verses 44 to 49. So hear now the word of the Lord. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to show you four things in this passage. In his final hours, On the earth, remember this takes place just hours before his ascension. They're in Jerusalem. They haven't yet walked out to the Mount of Olives. In his final hours on the earth, Jesus speaks to his disciples about a prophecy to be fulfilled, a mission to be executed, an identity to be embraced, and a provision to be received. So first of all, he speaks to them about a prophecy to be fulfilled. So zoom in, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, zoom in now to verses 45 to 47. Jesus opens the minds of the disciples to understand two things. First of all, he helps them understand how the Bible prophesies that the Messiah has to die and rise again. Remember, the disciples did not see that coming. They assumed Jesus was speaking metaphorically. Uh, they, They sort of, oh, so when you say, you know, die and rise again, you mean like, 
go through some kind of a downward journey and then an upward journey, metaphorically speaking. Jesus had told them three times, the Gospels record, Jesus predicting that he would die and then rise again. And each time we're told the disciples didn't get it. Now, because we live 2,000 years after and we've had a lot of Easter's and a lot of communion Sundays, we're like, how stupid were these disciples? Were these good choices? Should we be entrusting the future of the church to people who are this, you know, this dense? But they, all their expectations were of upwardness and victory, and, and they expected a Messiah who was going to be powerful and defeat their enemies. Problem was they misidentified the enemy. By the way, Christians do that from time to time. And because they misidentified the, the enemy, they misunderstood the methods that would, that would be used. And because they underestimated their sin, and P.S., don't Christians do that too? Because they didn't understand the seriousness of their sin, they didn't understand the seriousness of, of the, the method of redemption. And so, of course, that's the first thing Jesus has got to straighten out. He's, he's got to make it clear that, no, 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 this, this wasn't an accidental death. This wasn't a side, no, this was the plan all along. The Messiah was always going to die and rise again. And we wonder, you know, what, what passages was he walking them through for that? Was it Isaiah 53? I think it's got to be Isaiah 53. Uh, at least that's got to be one of the passages. Maybe it was Zechariah 12. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. He just records Jesus saying, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So we've got two streams of prophetic anticipation. The first of those streams is dealing with what the Messiah will have to do. The Messiah is going to have to die and rise again. And obviously Jesus took care of that. But then we've got this second stream of prophetic anticipation where Jesus says that this message, that repentance is going to be proclaimed to all the nations starting from Jerusalem. And, of course, that's the group of prophecies that has to do with us. Jesus took care of Acts 1, as it were, and then he handed off to us Acts 2. In the power that he provides, this is the story that we are going to live out. This is the prophecy that we are going to fulfill by the grace that he supplies. We'll get into that grace in just a moment. But for now, we need to start by understanding what Old Testament writings is Jesus referring to. Because he says, thus it is written, thus it is written, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, well, obvious question, where in the Old Testament does it prophesy that? Now, most scholars and preachers over the centuries have identified that Jesus is referring primarily here to prophecies made in Isaiah. So if you have your Bible with you, just flip leftward a couple hundred pages. In, in the church Bible, you're going to find Isaiah 49.6, which is where we're going now. You're going to find Isaiah 49.6 on page 610, if that helps you. Very interesting prophecy, Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49.6, the prophet actually records a conversation between God and his chosen servant, the Messiah. It says this. This is God speaking to the Messiah. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God says to Messiah, to Christ, 
We're not going to send you out just to bring back the 12 tribes of Israel. That is too small a job for such an exalted servant. No, we're going to send you out to work salvation for the nations so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. All right, so there is the prophecy about the salvation of Jesus Christ being taken to the ends of the earth. But what about that piece about it starting in Jerusalem? Because Jesus specifically refers to that. All right, well, that's found in Isaiah 2. So if you're already in Isaiah 49, 6, just go a bunch more pages over to Isaiah 2. That's also left. It's on page 567 in the church Bibles. This prophecy is so important, it's repeated word for word in two different places in your Bible. It also shows up in Micah. But here we have it in Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, 2 to 3 says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All right, well, that's an exciting prophecy. Isaiah says that the mountain of the Lord's house is going to grow and grow and grow and fill the earth. And, of course, that sounds a lot like Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, doesn't it? It's going to start small. Jesus acknowledged that. It's going to start small, but it's not going to stay small. It is going to grow and grow and grow and grow and fill the earth. And so now, same, same imagery of grow, 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 and fill, but now instead of a mustard seed, we got a mountain. A mountain, which is a house. All these metaphors are overlapping, right? That's why you could never draw it, or maybe you could draw it, and it would scare us all. So uh, we got a mustard seed we got a, that's a mountain, and a mountain that's a house, right? But it, the idea is that it's going to grow and grow and grow and fill the earth. And Jesus says that the house of the Lord has actually been ground down to a single stone. Before we start this massive expansion, we have to purify the materials. Doesn't that make sense? And, and so what Jesus says is that the house of the Lord has been ground down to a single perfect stone, and that's Jesus. There's a reason we named our church Cornerstone Baptist Church. Jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone. He's the new stone. He's the pure stone. And what he's saying is nothing will last unless it is built on him. That's a good thing to remember on your anniversary Sunday. But he says the house of the Lord has been ground down to one perfect 100% pure stone. And then the house is going to build up from there. Paul said that The Apostle Paul said that to a bunch of Gentiles. He said, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So here's that house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Gentile stones are being added now side by side with Jewish stones and the whole house is being renovated and reconstituted upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. Hallelujah. That's the apostolic gospel. That's Peter's call to his people as well. He said, come to him, Jesus, the living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house. Do you see that invitation? This metaphor became the controlling metaphor of the early church. 
They understood it got ground down to the perfect stone, but now it's being built up and it's going to grow and grow and grow. Not just Jewish stones. Stones from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth are going to be added side by side. And the house is going to grow. This blood-bought, spirit-filled house is going to grow. It's going to be great. It's going to be huge. Peter says, come in now. Right? That was Peter's call. That was the invitation of the apostolic gospel. The Lord is gathering in living stones from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. And he's making the biggest house, the largest nation, the most glorious people the world has ever seen. Can I just say something for a minute? It occurs to me that many evangelicals somehow over the last 30 years, and and I understand where it came from psychologically, You know, I say 30 years, but it really started about 70 years ago when we started feeling the loss of Christendom, when we started feeling the loss of the culture. These narratives of smallness began creeping into the church. Most of you don't even know how weird that is because it's the air that you breathe. You have grown up in the generation that has been terrified and has been traumatized by the loss of cultural control. P.S., Who promised you cultural control? You were not promised cultural control. You were promised progress. Slow, steady, bloody progress over time is what you were promised. But because things have gotten harder and because the world has turned against us a little bit in the last generation, these narratives of smallness have snuck into the church. And I would ask you, what is your expectation for the future? Just stop listening to me for a second and listen to your heart. What, what in your heart, when you look into the future, what do you expect? Because I think a lot of evangelicals expect that things are going to get worse and worse. The world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And, and so church is going to get smaller and smaller until there's just a tiny little holy huddle of us down in the church basement hiding in a fortress of canned goods waiting for the end. And I would just ask you, where does that come from? Because it, it does not come from here. That was not the prophecy. The prophecy that started this all is about something that started small and that grew brick by brick by brick until it became the largest house, the largest people in all the world. And, and so I think we need to repent of our narratives of smallness. And we need to start looking again for the greatness, for the glory, and for the growth that was prophesied. Now, am I saying that things aren't going to get worse? People ask me all the time, Pastor, do you think the next 10 years are going to be better or worse? You know what I always say? Yes. (laughs) Yes, I do. I think it's entirely possible that things are going to get worse out there. In fact, that looks more than possible. It looks probable. But I think that actually is going to expedite the process in here. Because the more the nations fall apart, the more living stones are going to be looking for a permanent home. A home built on something stable. A home built on something pure. A home built on something perfect. A home with a future. And so I think things are going to get worse and better over the next 10 years. And and the people who are going to be a part of that are those who are resolved and who are committed to the plan, that plan of one foot in front of the other, slow and steady wins the race, though it may be bloody in the meantime. There's going to be growth. There's going to be glory. There's going to be increase. Thanks be to God. And it's all going to start from Jerusalem. 
That was the prophecy. Isaiah says that in chapter 2, verse 3. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So that's the prophecy that the church is being sent out to fill, fulfill. As he speaks to the disciples in Jerusalem, he says these words. Remember in our passage in Luke 24, he said, but stay in the city. They're in Jerusalem hearing this prophecy until you are clothed with power from on high. So everything fits. That's the prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. And we see that prophecy beginning to be fulfilled in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. When 3,000 people hear the gospel in their own language by the power of the Holy Spirit and are converted, are baptized and added to the church on the same day, praise the Lord. So this prophecy in Isaiah has begun to be fulfilled and it continues to be fulfilled. Every time a soul is converted, every time a new stone is added, the mountain of the Lord's house gets bigger and bigger and the return of the Lord draws nearer. Thanks be to God. All right, so we've got a prophecy to be fulfilled. And then very much connected to that, we've got a mission to be executed. The role of the church in this process is specifically spelled out in verse 47, when Jesus says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So there we have our marching orders. Now, we talked about repentance a couple weeks ago when we were looking at Paul's uh, defense of Christianity and the defense of his own ministry before King Agrippa. Paul talked about his sense of mission basically as a call to the ministry of repentance. He said that Jesus had sent him out to the nations to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That sounds, by the way, exactly like the mission statement being given to the church as a whole in Luke. That's... That's what repent means. It means to call on people to turn, to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. That was Paul's understanding of his mission. He says that as soon as as he was given this commission, he went out and began telling Jews and Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So that's the mission. That's the part that we play as the church pursuing this prophecy. We tell people that they can return to God through the person and work of Christ. They can leave behind the works of darkness, and by the power that God gives them, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, by one degree of glory to the next, they can actually be restored to the people they were originally created and intended to be. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that because of Christ, we can be who we were created and intended to be, people who delight in God who walk in the light, and who rule over all creation. The gospel is the good news, that we can stop living like animals and we can be reconciled to our creator and restored to our original dignity and calling. And that is good news. That is the message that we've been entrusted with, and proclaiming that message to the nations is our mission. Let me ask you, do you still believe in that message, church? Because you can't sell what you aren't buying yourself. So do you still believe it? And are you still committed to communicating that message to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth? Because there are a lot of so-called Christians today who do not seem to believe in that message. Who do not seem to believe that people can leave behind the works of darkness 
and walk in the light. Who do not seem to believe that people can be released from the power of Satan to return to God. They're preaching a new gospel now, a different gospel that is no gospel. They're saying that God will come to us, that he will meet us in the mud, and he will leave us in the mud because that mud is the mud that we have chosen. He will affirm our sense of identity and calling. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is about a God who rescues us, resuscitates us, and restores us. The gospel is about being forgiven and about being free. Free from the penalty of sin immediately and free from the power of sin progressively so that we can get up out of the mud that we've been wallowing in and leave it behind. Hallelujah. A gospel that leaves you in your sin and confusion is not the gospel. And that's not the message that we've been entrusted with. Our message is about conversion and change. It is about growth and glory. Our gospel is good news. Thanks be to God. So that's our mission, proclaiming this good news to the nations. So we've got a prophecy to be fulfilled. We've got a mission to be executed. And then thirdly, we've got an identity to be embraced In verse 48, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses. That is a really life-giving and helpful way of positioning things. You are witnesses. So let me walk you through this. You are witnesses. So first of all, you're not the accused. Whoo, right? Like, you're not the accused. Who will bring an accusation against God's child? Who will bring an accusation against somebody standing there covered in the blood of the lamb? I'll tell you, there's not a creature in the universe who will dare to do that. So thanks be to God, if you're a blood-bought believer, you're not the accused. And you're also not the accuser, or at least you're not supposed to be. If your sense of mission and calling is to search the internet looking for Christians with questionable convictions so that you can out them on Twitter, can I just say, you work for the devil. He's the accuser of the brethren, right? Don't don't be on that team. You're not the accused. You're not the accuser. And let me also say, you're not the judge. We we don't get to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And thank God for that, right? Some of us would, would mess this up on one side, and some of us would mess it up on the other. Some of you would be letting everybody into heaven, and then I would want to leave. But, but then some of us are, are, are so rigid, right, that nobody can be saved unless they believe what you believe and eat what you eat and dress the way you dress and, and your songs are their songs and your shows are their shows. Wow, it's just going to be you and Jesus. And maybe not even that, right? So thanks be to God, you're not the accused, you're not the accuser, you're not the judge, you're not the jury. You're not the ones weighing all this, trying to decide what's true and what's false. I mean, we're the all-in people. We already believe. We've already decided. I have decided to follow Jesus. If you've already made up your mind, guess what? You're not on the jury. So you're not the accused. You're not the accuser. You're not the judge. You're not the jury. You know who you are? The witness. The witnesses. Whew. That's the easiest job in the whole process, right? All you have to do is say what you know and speak what you've seen. 
That's your job, right? You're witnesses. Has the Lord opened your eyes? Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Then open your mouth and talk about that. Has the Lord dug ears for you so that you can hear the things of life in the word of God? Then speak about that. Share about that. Tell other people what the Lord has done for you. Point them to Jesus. That's our job. That is all the Lord is asking from you. And that is so good. Because, I don't know about you, but I can't build the kingdom or establish justice. I, even when people say, you know, we got to be the hands and feet of Jesus, even that freaks me out. Like, have you seen the stuff that Jesus did? Sometimes we speak about our mission in absolutely crushing ways. Listen, if you tell me that my job is to establish justice in the nations, I quit today. If you tell me that my job is to build the kingdom, that's a recipe for burnout. How are we going to do that? You know what? And nowhere in the Bible are you told to do that stuff. That's stuff Jesus does. You know what the disciples are told in, in, in the Gospels? That they are receiving a kingdom. Nowhere are they told to build a kingdom. That's a, it's a recipe for burnout. Our job to be witnesses. I can do that. I can tell a story. I can, I can speak about what the Lord has done for me. I can speak about his kindness in my life. I can, I can tell people what I've seen by the grace of God. I can tell them why I believe that Jesus really is God in the flesh. I can tell them why I really is. I, I really believe he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I can tell them why I really do believe that he's the firstborn of the new creation, the bright and morning star. Praise the Lord. I can speak about that. And then what God does with that in the hearts of other people, man, that's up to him. We are not in the results business. We are in the faithful witness business. Now, some of you need to hear that as a call to rein it in, right? You've been out there trying to, you know, Build the kingdom or burn down the house, depending on whether you're negatively or positively oriented, right? You're trying to take control of the culture. You're trying to reimpose Christendom. You're trying to, you know, worm your way into the government. Now, of course, listen, I just want to be clear. In a democracy, we've all got responsibilities. So we should all be voting. We should be speaking our minds. We should be writing letters to our MPs and our MPPs. We should be attending rallies. We should be protesting overreach. Yes, yes, yes. But we need to be absolutely clear that the kingdom of God does not come in such ways. A marginally better democracy might come in such ways. But that's not the kingdom of God. And so we mustn't put our hope in such things. And we mustn't think that when we do such things that we are doing the mission of the church. No, we're not. That might be helpful work. That, that might be necessary work. That might be appropriate work for citizens in a democracy. But that is not the mission of the church. Don't know how we can be any more clear about that. We're witnesses. Not polit political agitators not revolutionary warriors. So some of you need to hear this as a call to rein it in. Well, I actually don't suspect that there are many of those people sitting in this church this morning. In fact, I suspect most of us need to hear this not as a call to rein it in, but as a call to ramp it up. Too many evangelicals in this country, in Canada, 
Too many evangelicals in this country are like a guy, you know, eating a bag of Doritos, watching the world go to hell in a handbasket, right? What are the crazy people doing today? Come on, Ma, take a look. The lunatics are out in force. That's not helpful, right? Well, our, we need you to wave the flag. We need you to tell people that there is a better way to live. We need you to invite people off the road that leads to destruction and onto the road that leads to life. We need to, you to speak to the people who are burning the house down and, and just tell them, hey, listen, friend, just so you know, when you burn the house down, you will find nothing eternal underneath. All you're doing is digging a road to hell. So you just need to leave that path. You need to come on over here and follow Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He can take you home back to God and back to yourself, back to the glory that you were made for in the beginning. That's your job. Wave the flag. Tell the truth. Share your story. Point to Jesus. And, of course, do it all in the power that God provides. That's the fourth thing I want you to see in the story here. We get a prophecy to be fulfilled, a mission to be executed, an identity to be embraced, and then a provision to be received. In verse 49, Jesus says, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. I like that Jesus says, Don't even try this until you have received power from the Holy Spirit. If you try to engage the Great Commission in your own power, you're going to be cannon fodder out there. They're going to eat you alive. This is not something that you can do on your own. That's good counsel. The Great Commission is an impossible task, full stop. And and do you know why the Great Commission is an impossible task? Because people are dead in their trespasses and sin. And dead people as a group are generally indifferent to good news. Dead people as a group are bad listeners to begin with, and they lack the will to make positive change because they're dead. But if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and if when the words come out of your mouth, the Holy Spirit is inside of them, then you are going to see dead people come to life, like Lazarus coming out of the grave, when people hear the voice of Jesus inside your voice, they are going to come stumbling out of the darkness and you are going to begin removing from them the clothes of death so that they can worship God, so that they can follow Jesus, so that they can become again the people they were created and intended to be. That's what you're going to do when you're clothed with power from on high. You're going to be in the miracle business. You're going to be in the resurrection business. And by the grace of God, we've been in this business now for 150 years. And let me, you know, Pastor Jody, many of you uh, will know, Pastor Jody was our worship pastor for, uh, I think, over a decade uh, here. And um, he came back. He was back in the church two weeks ago or three weeks ago for the dedication of, of his grandson. I had a great conversation with him after church. Great to see them. They're dear friends. And, um, and he said to me, he, he said, you know, on the outside of this, like I'm an outsider now, and he said, I, I just, I wonder if your people know, and I wonder if you know, he said, how rare and how odd it is to find a church this healthy and this alive and this vibrant and this missional after 150 years. And, and to be clear, 
that's not Pastor Jody saying that, you know, gee, things generally fall apart in the kingdom of God. What a wonder it is that you're still... No, no, that's not him saying that. See, because one of the things you figure out when you read the Bible long enough is God is on team God. God is committed to the fulfillment of his promises. So it's always going to get done. But whether or not you are a part of that is always up in the air. Right? When you read, when you read the letters that... that uh, to the churches in Revelation, in the, in the first couple of chapters of Revelation, what is clear there is Jesus is going to win, and you may or may not be there when he does. Your church may or may not still be shining their light when, when the work is done. But one thing is clear, Jesus is going to win. See, God is on team God. He is committed to blessing this process. He is committed to fulfilling the prophecy he made, which is that the mountain of the Lord's house is going to grow and grow and grow and fill the earth. That is going to happen. Whether or not Cornerstone Baptist Church is still a part of that 150 years from now, should the Lord tarry, that has not been guaranteed. But but one thing I know is if we stay in this path, if we just keep doing what we were told to do, if we are witnesses, if we open our mouths and tell the story and point to Jesus and we keep all the glory on him and we never get sucked into thinking that it's about us, and if we are willing to put up with some headwinds, see, because I'll tell you what's happening right now in Canada. There's a lot of headwinds for the first time in in living memory. This used to be easy. This is like you're walking on the treadmill at the gym and uh, your trainer has has set you up with a course and you think you're doing really well for the first five minutes. You don't realize that at the five-minute mark, the elevation increases. And now all of a sudden, you're starting to pray in tongues and sweating like, you know, and what in the world, right? And, and, And you think, has the Lord abandoned me? No, the, we're going uphill for a little bit right now. And, and what is happening in the, in the wider church as all these headwinds are, are coming is there are lots of Christians and lots of churches going off to the left or to the right. Because if, if you go a little bit right and get into politics, you've got lots of friends and lots of support in the culture. If you go a little bit left and get into all the social stuff and all the movements and all this kind of stuff and you, you wave the flag they want you to wave and affirm what they want you to, you'll have lots of friends in the culture. But if you just stay right here on the, on the narrow path, and put one foot in front of another. I got news for you. You are going to pay a steeper price. This is going to be a lot harder. You are going to sweat more. You are going to bleed more. But if you stay, you're going to be blessed more. And you're going to overcome. And the mountain of the Lord's house is going to grow, grow, and grow, and fill the earth. And I think this process is only going to be expedited in the coming decades. So stay the course. If we are still here, standing where we're standing today, 150 years from now, then the Lord will still be doing a great work in this place. Of that I am absolutely sure. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground, sink and stand. And so don't go there. So let me state the obvious. It has never been about us. A lot of good pastors were named in that thing. Praise God for them. We're thankful for them. It was never about them. Should the Lord tarry, there'll be a bunch of other good pastors. It won't be about them either. It will always be about us faithfully standing on the rock of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his teaching, his resurrection, his ascension, his present intercession. We stand on those things. We walk in this path, and the Lord will bless us.
and the Lord will use us. If we keep doing that, then through us, he will open eyes, he will empty graves, he will build a kingdom. He will do it. One life, one soul, one stone at a time. And the mountain of the Lord's house will grow and grow and fill the earth. And people will take their friends and loved ones by the hand and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it was said, so it was done, and so it goes on in the power and provision of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how you have been faithful to us, lo, these many years. Lord, what a privilege it has been to walk in the path of your purpose. Fill us with your power. Commission us into this mission. Send us out afresh today. Open our mouths to speak. Loosen our tongues to declare the praises of your name and the glory of your gospel in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.